Welcome to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we explore the local arts culture in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll explore all types of mediums with a goal of enriching local culture. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. As always, I'm Elise. And I'm Ben. And thanks for tuning in. Yeah. So Elise, last week, you had a pretty art-filled weekend and week. I did. Absolutely. So on Friday, I went to the closing reception of the Glass Show at the Bethlehem House Gallery. Nice. Which was lovely. I met a few new artists, um, a couple guests we're going to have coming up on the show. And it was lovely just to see all of the the glass work one more time. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, So they're... The glass show is finished, and then they'll be opening their new show on June 25th. So by the time this episode comes out, you should be able to go check it out. Yeah. There is uh, a former podcast guest, Abby Roscoe, will have her work yes. exhibited in that new show. So yes. Looking forward to seeing have that. Have to go check it out. Man, Elizabeth and I wanted to make that that closing gallery so bad, but we left for our honeymoon, so... We you guys were not able to attend. sound like you had a pretty art-filled week on your trip. So. Yes. Hopefully we'll talk about that at another point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yeah. I also went to three nights of the Southside Film Institute's annual Southside Film Festival. Nice. So it was the 17th Southside Film Festival. They had a fantabulous logo this year of (laughs) cicadas with little film reels for the eyes. (laughs) So I love that. And at the beginning of um, some of the blocks, they had like an animation on the screen of the cicadas like fluttering around. I was trying to exhibit my fluttering. fluttering around and then the film reels turning their eyeballs so i thought that was very fun very artsy but yeah the film festival was wonderful it was back in person this year so congratulations to them but uh yeah i really enjoyed it Oh, that's awesome. So mm-hmm. you were able to go to a number of shorts blocks and feature blocks, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I went to the opening night on Tuesday at the, it was held at the Char- Lehigh Valley Charter Arts High School. Okay. And then the other two nights I went to the animation block, which was held at Touchstone Theater and uh, a late night horror showing, which was like a special event oh, uh, also cool. held at Touchstone Theater. Nice. Yeah. They had a great film, um, and there was many that I saw, but the documentary feature that was there for the opening evening was titled Women of Steel, directed by Robin Murphy. Um, It was a a filmmaker out of Australia, but it was created about a town where steel was the primary industry um, in Australia. (laughs) How fitting. (laughs) Obviously chosen for the festival for a reason, Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was a great story about fighting discrimination in the workplace and the steel Mm -hmm. industry and um, the culture and personality of these women in Australia in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So absolutely adored that. Oh, that's so cool. Can't wait to find it online at some point. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, But it's very good. Do you have a short from any of the shorts blocks that really stood out to you? There's actually a local gentleman, John Wrigley, who had a short in the animation block titled A Tale of Two Viruses. It was only about three minutes, but uh, the the line here in the book says two anthropomorphized coronaviruses debate the morality of what they're doing to the human race. (laughs) So I liked that one a lot. Oh man! Um, He did a little Q&A at the end and said that he had written the story for it and then sent it to an animator and it was all done over over Zoom and over quarantine. So congrats, John. That was fabulous. Really liked that one. Oh, that's fun. Then there's another one, um, which 
in the same animation block. Also, uh, I don't think the gentleman was local, but he was he was there uh, to answer Q and A. But it was called UFO versus Dinosaur. Oh my and it goodness! It was a, a quick two minute claymation, which I just thought was absolutely hysterical and very fun. So. I, I really did enjoy everything. Um, it's funny because I am not the film buff in the, yeah. <laughs> in this podcast setting. So it was kind of fun going through this and then saying, oh, man, I can't wait to go back home and like share this with Liz and Ben when they get back from their vacation. Yeah, <laughs> so for sure. It was, it, it was a really good time. So uh, congratulations, awesome. Southside Film Fest. You did it again. Well, we have a very exciting guest this week and we are going to have Elizabeth read her bio. Lori Storley Wagner is a multidimensional next-level creative. She has worked as an actor and voiceover artist for over 20 years. She is a certified hypnotherapist. She hosted a weekly radio show. She started an all-female improv comedy troupe in Los Angeles that won Best and Fest at the Southern Improv Festival and was invited to perform their brand of improv at festivals all over the country. She was a semi-professional pool player and played in a pro qualifier while in her third trimester of pregnancy. She had a baby. 100% naturally at the age of 45, and she started her child care program in Santa Monica, California that became wildly successful. She has been a parent support provider for the last 13 years, and she is currently an online parent support coach. She believes that incorporating the rules of improv with modern parenting can and will help overwhelmed parents get out of survival mode and transform their parenting so that they can lean into the joy of parenting. She has over 20 years of improv comedy training and has trained with, performed with, and produced with some of the best of the best in the business of comedy and improv. She currently hosts a podcast called Improvised Parenting, in which she chats with fellow improvisers who are also parents, as well as other experts who further the concept of being an improvised parent. Lori, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We've been so excited for today. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we really have. It's been a topic of conversation for a couple months. Yeah. Oh my gosh, hang on. I'm going to go run around the studio. I'll be right back. <laughs> I'll give a shout out to Shay Zukowski and Juxtahub because yeah. that's how you and I met, Yeah, um, which was really exciting and I think Shay had deemed it the podcast posse and it was a collection of local Lehigh Valley, all women actually. She dubbed it the podcast posse, which I have effectively renamed uh, Elizabeth Ben in my group chat. So <laughs> that is, <laughs> thank that you, is Shay, for the inspiration. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh awesome. my gosh. Yeah. I love those guys over at JuxtaHub. I mean, that was, I can tell you that their press release that came out maybe two years ago when I saw it. I was like, this is a vision I had in 2018 before I moved out here. Mm. So I immediately got in touch with Joyce and I said, we got to connect, you know, and so much of what she wanted to bring to Juxtahub was so much of what I'd already, you know, I've been doing my whole life as, you know, creatives, you know, we have so many different outlets for our creativity mm -hmm. and you're like, well, you know, when we see something that has so many elements of who you are in one place, you have to do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely an embodiment of you and your work because something that you had uh, sent in, I'm going to read it off here so I don't get it wrong, but you just, des you describe yourself as a multi-dimensional next level creative, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that as so many people identify as that because, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, in the past, we talked about this earlier about how society has told us you're this or you're that, you mm-hmm. know, labeling is becoming a thing of the past, labeling what I do and who I am. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I am this multi-level creative. I can see and do anything I want to. I just have to make the choice, right. you know, and a, and a lot of times you gravitate towards things that, you know, you just do to do. It's never for a career, you know. It's if it's intrinsically motivated, it's you're not doing it for the money. You're not doing it for a career, you know, or anything like that. You're mm-hmm. doing it because you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of actors will tell you that. I can't not act. So on the weekends I'm at all the improv jams and, you know, I'm in every theater production I can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always doing stuff that and it's always for free. I mean, actors don't get paid. Musicians don't get paid that much unless they're really lucky. True. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. so I'll I'll jump right to our creative process question yeah. because that process for you is probably really different from someone who is more, I don't like the word focused, but like directed in a single medium. Yeah. Um, so in your creative process, whether it be podcasting whether it be improv um, parenting Mm -hmm. as an art form (laughs) yeah um how does that creative process start does it just start with creating a space to allow yourself to be creative and then where does it go from there like most creative things it starts with an idea so an idea will pop into your head and you want to give it legs you want to you know sometimes the idea will be right there immediately. Um, I was telling you the story of how my podcast came to fruition. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even think I was going to do a podcast. I knew about podcasting. There was talk about a podcasting. I know in, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people were listening in on podcasts and doing mm-hmm. podcasts. Um, but what really spurred it for me was that little competitive spirit because an article came out in the New York Times by uh, Paul J. Underwood, and it was called Yes and Clean Your Room. And I have been talking about Yes and Parenting. In fact, before Improvised Parenting, my my coach, my parent coaching was called Yes and Parenting mm-hmm. because um, it's based on the rules of improv. Um, but I switched it to improvised parenting because I thought that, well, improvising means something different to everybody. It sure. could mean like a jazz improviser. It could be like a MacGyver type of improviser. Or, you know, we we improvise daily on the, you know, in life. We all improvise, not just parents. You yes. know, like one of my friends, um, Bill Cott, said that uh, we are not every improviser is a parent, but every parent is an improviser <laughs> ah. because it's true. We're always on the, going by the seat of our pants. And I always felt the most comfortable doing that. So this article made me go, Hey, he's talking about what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. he didn't call me and interview me for this article. <laughs> That's got to change. So I started reaching out to everybody that was in the article. And I said, can I interview for my podcast that I didn't have yet? <laughs> um, and I got some people that said yes. And the one, the first guest I had on my podcast was Paul Valencourt, who was one of my teachers. He was the guy that brought Improv Olympic to L.A. He He's part of like the biggest team in you know improv beer shark mice everybody on that team is a celebrity they were just on celebrity family feud um (laughs) he was my coach he was my teacher he was my mentor and he was my first guest on my podcast and i love him dearly and so i he jumped on with me and we just started talking about improv and parenting and and it just came you know it just kind of fell into place 
So that's my artistic process is when I say yes and I just go for it, everything seems to just fall into place. So step one, yes and go. Yes and go, yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's so true, Ben, because yes is the first step to say yes to it. Yeah. Yeah. On your resume, you have quite an extensive list of things. It's crazy, I know. (laughs) Who is this crazy person? Uh, She must be lying. Some of them include parent, Mm -hmm. improv comedian, Mm -hmm. child development expert, Mm -hmm. hypnotherapist, Mm -hmm. radio show host, Mm -hmm actor, Mm -hmm. voiceover artist, Mm -hmm. and semi-professional pool player. Yes, ma'am. And pro qualifier while in your third trimester of pregnancy. (laughs) It's all, I'm afraid it's all true, people. Every single bit of it. I don't have enough time to tell you all about it, but, you know. Well, what, what came first? Oh, this is the existential question, isn't it? Mm. So what came first for me? Um, was um, moving to California because I got a job offer. The company I was working for here um, closed. And one of the people that used to work there had moved out to California to start a record label for Robert Fripp. And they were struggling. And he said, we need Wagner, which is my maiden name, (laughs) which all the cool people know me by. Um, (laughs) And so he reached out to me and I was like, perfect timing, dude, because this place is shutting down. So my boyfriend and I packed up everything in a 1978 Ford Econoline van and drove across the country. And we were in Long Beach. You know, there was, you know, like homeless people sleeping in our van and stuff. It was cool. It was all good. Um, but what happened from that was, um, you know, I'm in a new place. Uh, I'm culturally like in shock. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what to do with myself. But one thing I did know how to do was play pool because I always had a pool table in my basement. Yeah. So I found a place in Long Beach to play pool and I went and I played pool. And I, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but there's something so zen about doing something that you know you're good at and you love doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what I encourage like people to really just tap into is like, I know I'm good at playing pool because math makes sense to me. I'm mathematically inclined. I think math is the universal language. So like for me to play pool, it's almost like it's, it's a next level thing. When I'm playing pool, it's, I can't explain it. It's, it's another realm Hmm. of existence for me. And, you know, it just made sense that I would just try to join a a pool playing community, which I did. And um, from that pool playing community, I joined a league. And from that league, I went to Vegas every year and played on teams that competed with teams from all over the world. And then, you know, came the competitive, like, hey, let's get on the pro tour kind of thing. And I did, (laughs) you know, so there was a qualifier in San Diego and I was in my third trimester of pregnancy. And I was like, why not? Yes, and (laughs) I'll be right there. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So it was funny trying to like make a shot with a big old belly in front of me but it was good times it was a good time a good story too (laughs) very impressive (laughs) so moving from semi-professional pool player Mm -hmm. that concept of yes and is that what led you to all of these other things as well absolutely yeah, absolutely. Because the job itself is what led me to go to California. Yes. I'll, and I'll go buy a, a big old van and fit my stuff in it and get there. <laughs> yes. You know, and 
then the the job that he offered me was just not right for me. It wasn't a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, moved on to work in the commercial production industry. And I was working in commercial production for a little while. And then I ended up working at 20th Century Fox. And that led to me working. This is all going to like these all fit, all these things connect because the story I was telling you earlier about my pool table. So working at 20th Century Fox, this story is amazing in itself because the commercial production company I worked with was vying to get Jean-Pierre Genet, the film, the French film director, mm. to be a director for their commercials because that's how he started in France was wow. he was a commercial okay. director and they were really like trying to get him to come over and my job, I left the commercial production company and went to work at 20th Century Fox on the film Alien Resurrection that John Pierre was directing. So wow. it was so crazy. <laughs> like that connection was there. Yeah. Okay. And then John Pierre had a wrap party at his house. And he told me he had a pool table or his assistant told me he had a pool table. And we were the first ones there. And I walk in and she goes, come in, see my swimming pool, my alien, my, you know. <laughs> and I was like, uh, where's the pool table? You know, like I'm a total <laughs> geek, right? I'm like, where's the pool table? And I said, oh, you play i will have to play sometime and then so i'm like eyeing up at the food table and his assistant comes up to me and she goes jean pierre is ready to play you now and i was like uh, okay and i went downstairs and played jean pierre Pinet on his pool table and i won and he you know graciously um excused himself to go back to the party but the next time i saw him he's like we'll play again and i was like yeah of course we will <laughs> Yes, and I'll win. Yes, and no, and yes, and he played. Yes, and he played the hardest game in pool, which is one pocket. He knew oh it very gosh. well, so mm. he he was a much better player than I was. It was you know, like it was just kind of like you know, he's playing a girl, and oh, you know, man. I don't know. He, he probably wasn't <laughs> taking it seriously. Who knows? Jump here. Don't listen to this. Okay. Um, and yeah, and so the next time we played, he won, and then we had to have a rematch but the way he said it to me with his broken english i didn't understand he said we'll have to play again uh, this time for the pool table and i was like <laughs> and he's like no i'm very serious and i was like yes okay yes and i absolutely so i got his pool table i took out all the furniture in my one bedroom loft and I had his pool table in my house for many, many years until I had a baby. <laughs> I was going to say, do you still have the pool table? No, I, uh, yeah, I had to get rid of let it go because, you know, when I had the baby, we needed space for her. So it was so wonderful because he was one of my favorite film directors. Now, Ben, we talk, we can talk film yeah. all day long. Now, Jean-Pierre Genet, I don't know if you know who he is, but his first film, Delicatessen, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, don't stare at my goosebumps because... <laughs> Oh my god, that movie is so amazing! It's just amazing because of its its lightness around a heavy subject, mm-hmm. and the musicality of it. Like the rhythm of the movie is insane, and the intelligence of the movie is insane, and like the direction, the eyes that he sees through are so uh, enticing and just oh my god, romantic and lovely and yeah. beautiful. Continuing love- the legacy of French art. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, he was obviously influenced, you know, oh, by that. 100%. So, and, you know, going back to how art influences us, exposure to art is so important Definitely. to us, you know, from early on because yeah. it influences 
the way we see the world. So we see something in art and we use it as a filter for how yeah. we see other things. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you brought up Alien Resurrection, mm -hmm. which I think is hilarious because that was my first rated R movie. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I watched it. I watched it at 4 a.m. Christmas morning when I woke up and my parents were like, you have to go back to bed. And I'm like, I'm not going back to bed. I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch something on TV until you guys wake up. And so then I went outside and then I got in so much trouble. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it was worth it. The big deal about that was that three wasn't that good. And Joss Whedon had written the script for Resurrection, and yeah. Sigourney Weaver couldn't put it down. So it was like interesting. Yeah, yeah. from LA. Mm -hmm. That was your first time moving to LA. No, I mean when we were kids, we moved back and forth. I think two or three times okay. because mm -hmm. my dad's sister Mary, she lived out in LA, and so she would always try to get my dad, mm -hmm. lure my dad out because he was her favorite brother. Oops, <laughs> I hope you're not listening, <laughs> other brothers. <laughs> um, anyway, everybody knew that, but um, so. You know, we as a family did that cross country trip wow. a few times. Yeah, oh. in, a, in an old Corvair, you know? Nice. And yeah, it was pretty cool. And nice. so, yeah, we, we did a couple stints there. And for my graduate, my mom would always get tired of it. So that's how we ended up back here. <laughs> um, and for my graduation president, my graduation from high school, my parents were like, well, what do you want for your present? And I said, I want to go out to California. <laughs> I just, something inside me, I just knew I was meant to be there. You know, I don't know what it was, Yeah. you know, and so that's what I, that's what they got me. I went and stayed with my Aunt Mary for my senior graduation and I knew I was going to move there. I called up my uncle like a, a few years later. I think that was when I was 17 and then I worked for, for a couple of years. The first time I went out was just to go out. Okay. So I didn't, that's, that was just to be there for a little bit. And I stayed with another aunt and just to be there by myself and figure it out. And that was tricky, you know, mm -hmm. talk about culture shock when you're just like 20 years old. And the beauty of that was I felt grown up because I had auditioned for a movie in Philadelphia and they were looking for, I think, 10 or 12 dancers to be in this movie called The In Crowd. And I was one, I was one of 12 out of 500 people that auditioned that was chosen. And so I was on set basically the whole time they were in Philadelphia. So wow. I, yeah, I earned enough money my own to buy a car and to go to California. Uh, okay. So I was like, I'm going back out by myself. Yeah. That's where I'm meant to be. <laughs> and the director who, you know, it, um, this is another funny, funny thing that happened. So as I'm out there in California and I have a job, I'm working in a mall at a clothing store and who walks in, but the director of the in crowd. <laughs> and he's like, Hey, and I'm like, yeah, you told me to move out here. And I did. And he's like, that's so great. You know? <laughs> so we stayed in touch and it was so cool to just, you know, but here I am 3000 miles away by myself and it's all making sense. It, it's, you know, all the signs are there just because I said, yes, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I said yes to it. So you're a dancer too? No. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got some moves at least, but I wouldn't call myself a dancer. Oh. And in fact, no one would call me we a dancer. We just had this conversation though, because we said painting makes you a painter. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, this painting. is true. Oh, actively painting. This is true. And I would say my, my dancing moment in the sun was at the stone wall. Is the stone wall still in existence here? I'll go ahead and give a shout out to Bradbury Sullivan, the local LGBT center, because the stone wall just recently closed. Oh. And they are doing an amazing um, like cap- capturing memory project. Uh, so you can <gasps> submit to them. I'll have I'll have Ben put the URL to that in, in yeah. our bot in our episode information. Um, but just very recently. Oh my um, gosh, you yeah. have to share that with me because I Absolutely. had one of my fondest memories. Many of my fondest memories were at the Stonewall. Huh. And, um, you know, like I said, my dancing moment in the set was at the Stonewall. Like, it was so <laughs> fabulous. Oh my gosh. And I'm sure yeah. I was dancing to Madonna or something. Um, but yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so fun. So you had mentioned that you were kind of back and forth from California mm-hmm. multiple times. Yeah. Um, so when was it that you kind of got into improv? When I really got into it, um, it was here in the Lehigh Valley. Wonderful. So I can talk about that. Like I was taking an acting class locally and the funniest thing was like I was doing a serious scene, mm-hmm. but people were laughing at me and I was like, I wasn't offended. I was like, this is cool. People <laughs> were laughing at me. I was a huge fan of, you know, Jerry Lewis growing up and Pratt Falls were my thing. Like I love sight gags. I mean, so I probably was doing that in my serious acting and not even realizing it because, you know, I'm a physical person and sure. I was probably doing some physical comedy, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, whoa, I love this. And, you know, I used to stay up late and watch Saturday Night Live. Carol Burnett, I mean, Fridays, you know, and what's super cool about that is Fridays, Melanie Chardoff used to be on Fridays and she and I ended up becoming, you know, friends in California. It was so interesting. And it's not like she's on my speed dial, but I, you know, I met with her and I got to share my stories about how much she influenced me. And, you know, it was really cool. And, you know, we're, we're Facebook friends now. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. But yeah, that was really big for me. And so from that, I, you know, I met a couple guys, one of the guys um, that was in the arts community was a guy named David Lally. Now, David is local. He is in New York right now. He's an actor. And he had been in Chicago. And I think he was with the Annoyance Theater, which is super popular from the improv explosion. And he started an improv sketch group here. Um, we wrote sketches, we did improv together and we had a blast and we even went and performed up in New York city Hmm. and that was awesome. Yeah. And then there was a local show, a local sketch show here that was fairly popular called the sturdy beggars comedy show and Joe and Jerry long. And so we kind of naturally gravitated towards that and we were in that show Nori and I, Nori and I just did everything. We just yes and did everything. Um, and we were just looking for stuff to do. <laughs> and so we did it. And that was fun. And then when I was moving out to California, I, you know, again, was that culture shock that I was speaking of earlier and yeah. going out and playing pool and then realizing, okay, we were in Long Beach at that time, but Todd had gotten a job up in L.A. proper mm-hmm. in West L.A. So now we're in Hollywood. And I'm like, Second City, oh my gosh, (laughs) I could take classes there. And that's how that started. I took classes at Second City with some really great people. And then I wanted to get on stage like most people who are like, you know, really into it. You know, we could do, yeah, we could do the jams on the weekends. 
at, you know, after hours, but mm -hmm. getting up on stage was really tricky because it, it, they were well established at this point. I mean, the people that were on stage at that time already have shows on Comedy Central now, like Derek Waters was on stage at the time. Wow. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, one late night conversation, we're all talking about it. And somebody said, you know, Wagner, if you want to get on stage, go to IO. You know, they just opened. And so I did. And it's funny because it's very incestuous. I mean, like a lot of the teachers that were teaching at Second City were also teaching at I.O. And uh, by level three, I was on stage with a group of girls called Wink, you know, and we were having a blast the time of our lives. We got invited to perform all over the country. We got invited to perform at the Del Close Marathon in Chicago. And oh, we got that's so yeah, cool. And in New York. Yeah. And we got invited to perform in Louisiana. And um, we won best and fast there. That's so, so cool. It was so much fun. <laughs> I mean, it was more fun than I could even describe. Yeah, I could, I could imagine. <laughs> so for me and and for our listeners, mm -hmm. um, I'm very familiar with the concept of like a, a jam for musicians. But how does that translate in com into comedy? Like what's an improv jam? An improv jam is where you do different games. And so you can call it a game. So uh, there's usually a host or two that's on stage and they'll they'll call the game, you know, okay, we're going to start off with hands. And I'm sure you've all seen hands because a lot of YouTubers are doing it right now. It's very popular. And this was a, a really fun thing to watch for the audience. Hmm. So they would have, okay, I need two actors and they would have two actors come up on stage. They would get two suggestions, you know, a location and who they were. And then they would do hands. And then so like, for example, I would put my, you know, I would stand behind Ben and put my hands underneath his arms and he would put his hands behind his back and he would start, we would start, he would start doing a scene and my hands would inform the scene. Yeah. So that's a jam. Freeze tag is another super popular jam. So you get up <laughs> and you play, okay, Ben, Elise, up on stage. Okay. Okay. I need a suggestion for a time and a place and I need a suggestion for an occupation. What, you know, waiting room at a doctor's office. Okay, go. And then you just start off and you're like, oh come here often, you know, or whatever the case. And you kind of establish a connection between the two of you or not and, you know, grow that, you know, and then someone from the audience will get a great idea and go freeze and you have to freeze wherever you are in the scene and they'll come up and they'll tap oh, you, you go away and they'll fun. take over and change the scene. <laughs> so it's a really neat skill for an improver who does, you know, like a group setting improv to learn is freeze tagging because a lot of times when a scene is starting to kind of flatline a little mm. um it, it's an, it's a skill to know when to go freeze and then stop the scene and go in and support it and a lot of young improvisers will freeze right away before um you know the actors on stage even have a line out so that's another skill to learn is like let the scene breathe for a minute yeah. because that's what improv is all about like seeing where this is going to take us yeah you know and supporting one another so if they if you feel like the actors on stage are stuck then you can go freeze and I'm going to come help you because that's what it's for about. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Fellow improvisers out there listening, please contact us so we can start a jam with y'all. We've got the place here. That would Steel be, Pixel yes, we Studios. Do. So much fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh Good times, man. Send us an email. Direct sure. message us. Let us know if you're interested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know there's a big improv community at Steel Stacks Arts Yeah, Quest. through Arts Quest yeah. there yeah. is. Awesome. I really enjoy it. They also do quite a few um, 
at the Emmaus Theater, uh, there's comedy nights all the time. There I've are. heard yeah. that. Yeah. I, I've heard that. I love mm-hmm. Emmaus. I think it's a hotbed of creativity. Absolutely. You know, I want to move to Emmaus. I'm kind of on the outskirts of Lower mm. Rikenji, but it's. I keep telling my daughter, like, this is where we're going to move and I'll drive around the triangle. And she's like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, have, they have such a fun setup at the Emmaus Theater for yeah. that, too. For sure. And what's the... Oh, this is an improv, but I'll shout out to Abby Roscoe, <laughs> oh, yeah. who had shared um, her partner is part of, um, I really hope I'm getting this right, the Easton Comedy Offensive, oh. and they hold every Sunday night in a comedy open mic in her studio space in oh. Easton, oh. which is fantastic. So if you're oh, yeah. interested in that, you can find Abby through our podcast, but um, that's, a, I, I went before, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh man, I love it. Yeah. So yeah, and and the idea is for us all to support one another, because right. we're all Definitely. really trying to do this, and this is a passion. This is fueled by passion. There's mm-hmm. no other reason to be doing improv, yeah. you know, is, is you're fueled by that creative energy and that connection that you get from the people on stage with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of our warm-up exercises before our performance was like this crazy where we would huddle. We had like 12 women in huddle and we would count to 20. And we would count because in a way that we wouldn't talk over one another. So it would go one and you wait. And then another person would say two. And then if you said, if two people said it at the same time, you start at one again. So mm. you train yourself to listen to one another. Yeah. Not just with your ears. Oh, that's a huge, that's what a cool exercise in like collective energy. Because, that's it. Yeah. Ah, very cool. That's it. And that's the jam. And that's like jamming with, you know, like uh, jazz musicians. It's the same thing. Like you're listening. You're not just playing. Yeah. You're yeah. listening. You're connecting with drum circles. Same thing. Like you're jiving with one another. You yeah. know, it's. That's funny that you say that because I was actually thinking of that in the, I'm a violinist and played the violin through elementary school, middle school, high school, and some in college, Mm -hmm. um, in orchestra, like a traditional orchestra setting. And that was, I had a band director when I was in high school who, um, if we would start something and he could tell by section if one of the sections was was off, he would say, stop, start over. You're not listening mm-hmm. to each other. Oh, and yeah. what a cool skill to learn because of music, but just to, I don't know, I, I've tied this in a couple episodes, but like the spatial awareness that comes along with being mm. a creative or being an artist, mm-hmm. whether that's visual art, performing art, music, comedy, whatever, that you ha- have to become so aware of your surroundings yeah. To translate that into creative expression and that's funny that that's a a very heavy crossover theme between <laughs> between improv comedy and orchestral music yeah but it makes so much sense doesn't Absolutely. it i Definitely. mean because our surroundings do inform us as we go through life mm-hmm. you know we're moving through life and we're we're taking it in from with all of our senses mm-hmm. and we're taking it in from everything that's in life like right now in this room we're all taking things in you know yeah. as as you know we listen to one another and as you know the temperature in the room and the lights everything is affecting what we're doing right here and right now and it's making this amazing podcast well i'd like to jump into that because i am obsessed with the concept of spatial awareness Mm -hmm. um and the first time it's come up in this podcast was oh gosh i'm not even sure what episode it was but the one where we talked about the joseph greenberg statue at the public library and um the spatial awareness of public art, like how you interpret public art is heavily based on the surrounding and not even necessarily based on the piece. And it's kind of twofold. Um, But how does that relate to 
improv comedy because sometimes a lot of the time you're in kind of a black box theater setting where Mm -hmm. there isn't a space and you have to imagine it. Mm -hmm. You have to create it. Right. You create the space and that's how you do it. That's how you inform it. And that's how you connect with it because you have two people on stage and that you don't know what that person's going to be doing. So you kind of listen and you see and you add to it. You know, so if you're telling me there's, you know, there's a, a rocket ship behind me, yeah. the worst thing I can do is say, no, there's not. That's stupid because yeah. then I shut you down and that's communication shut down when we say no to people, right. which is why I have this, you know, kind of how do we flip the script for our kiddos with, you know, positive parenting, improvised parenting. And it's the same, it's the same concept. Right. Like, you know, a lot of times kids come up with crazy stuff and it's it's our job as parents to try to see the world through their eyes. I would yeah. imagine, you know, so the way we do that is we say, yes, oh, yeah, yeah. there is a rocket ship behind <laughs> me. How did that get there? Yeah. You know, and we start talking about their idea mm-hmm. and we start seeing the world through their eyes. So when you're on a stage with somebody. That's what you're doing, yeah. you know, and I'm going to start talking to you about what you see. And then you're going to start talking to me about what I see. And the audience is going to love it. Right. And it doesn't have to be funny. I mean, I can tell you the best improv I've seen in my life was this two person improv in Chicago, TJ Jagodowski and Dave. And I always forget Dave's name and I'm sorry, Dave. Um, <laughs> but um, these guys are famous. Every improviser knows who they are. Wow. Because they had, they were impeccable at giving each other space. So the scene starts out with the two of them fishing and it's just silence for the whole beginning of the scene because they, they let each other be quiet and they listen to each other. And I was like, I couldn't breathe. I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever, <laughs> you know, because a lot of times that nervous energy on stage for improvisers were like rushing to say something, rushing to have this great idea and rushing to be funny. And, the best stuff is in the quietness, in that mm. space, you know, in that listening to one another, in that truth, yeah. you know. So that's huh. my spiel. No, I love that. And I love the idea of how do you create spatial awareness in a space where nothing exists right. kind of thing. Well, going you from, just answered it. You yeah, create it. Right. You absolutely. Are, you define it. Mm-hmm. You define that space. This is my kitchen. Yep. Don't don't go in. Don't come in my kitchen. You know better. <laughs> like you can start the scene off that way. Sure. You know you're not supposed to come in here. Get. And all of a sudden the audience sees the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Right. Definitely. That's very cool. pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) That is super cool. So going from improv then, where did that lead you to next? So real life intervened with improv at a certain point. Mm. Um, I met my my ex-husband. At the time, he wasn't even my friend, but now he's my ex-husband. I met my (laughs) husband at the pool hall. He was a bartender there and he was a new bartender. So we go to Vegas every year in July. We come back and we take breaks because it's a lot of pull for a lot of time. So you need a break. <laughs> and um, when I came back from break, there was a new bartender. And I'm like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Eric. And I was like, okay. And then the minute I met him, I don't believe in this people. But the minute I met him, I was like, I'm going to marry that guy and have babies with him. And sure as bleep, that's what happened. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Did that in, did, did my thought inform the, the, the uh, action or did, you know, was that meant to happen? Like the, the existential question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But um, yeah, so when I met him, you know, it, we... 
we started to build a life together and I couldn't be at Improv Olympic every single night doing lights, you know, attending other people's shows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it was like, okay, now things changed. And I said, yes, and to this part of my life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's how that happened. So I kind of transitioned away from improv for a little bit and into my real life, mm -hmm. you know, or the life that that is expected of us i would say get married have kids do all mm. that you know so i did that i said yes to that that's cool yeah let me to here so i can't degrudge any of it sure yeah very cool mm. so the concept of yes and mm -hmm. and your parenting style is heavily intertwined as we talked about a little bit earlier yeah <laughs> yeah um so i will frame it as you are raising a creative. <laughs> yes, aren't we all? <laughs> um, but you are also helping other people inform their parenting decisions with the tools used in improv. Yeah, I think that um, we're held back in our parenting. A lot of parents are held back in our parenting by societal constructs, by expectations that are, you know, were put in place by the way we were parented, um, whatever way that was. Um, and also by what, you know, other people tell us, you mm -hmm. know, so in the world of the internet, we have access to everything and anything we could ever want to know, you know, so we truly are know-it-alls in a sense because we are, you know, um, information is, is, is a Google click away. So if you want to know about how to be a parent, you can look it up online, but it's also what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Like, um, if you want to be a teacher, don't go to school to learn how to be a teacher, spend time with kids hmm. because that's mm. how you learn to be a teacher because you are supporting their development. Right. You're not, you're not getting a paycheck being a, a teacher. So if that's what you're in it for, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you're misinformed because <laughs> you're not getting that pay. They're not getting mm. a big paycheck as a teacher. I can tell you it's not a living wage for a single mom. And that, that was heartbreaking because I had a, pro a very successful program in California in Los Angeles. Um, and then I moved mm. back here to be with family mm -hmm. and really struggled to find my legs here just because you know obviously again it's the reverse culture shock coming back to where i came from but having things been changed things having been changed here yeah. right. to a great deal and then also my whole life there for the past 23 years had informed me to be who i ended up being at that point so it's very different and yeah i struggled to find my way i struggled to define myself here because it's very mm. different yeah yeah, and in improvised parenting came out of that. It came out of just a lot of meditation and just a lot of listening, being still and listening, like, what am I supposed to do here? What am I here for? And really tuning into that, you know, getting getting connected to, say, the hive mind of my like-minded people. Sure. And what do they need, you know, and and serving the needs of my community. That's what it's all based in, after all. So your podcast titled yes. Improvised Parenting. Yeah. Um, I'm very big on themes. Yeah. I tie themes between episodes. Definitely. <laughs> tie themes in my artwork, tie themes in everything. What are some very common themes? Because you have quite a few episodes mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some common mm -hmm. themes that come up come up in your podcast? Um, common themes that come up are basically um 
rethinking the parenting model. You know, a lot of times, you know, we're the elder, as it were, we're the mentor in the situation. So we, we take on that role at, you know, with, with some weight, there's a lot of weight around having to inform another human being on how to live a life. Mm. I mean, it's, it's so heavy. Like everything we say and do is going to impact this human and, and it's going to inform who they become, especially in the first formative years. You know, those first two years, that attachment bond has to be there because otherwise there are very um, palpable be- uh, deficits, if not, you know, like it, the brain doesn't grow as, as much as it could if there's not that physical connection to each other, you know, and then after two, the child started the brain, all the, you know, the, all the parts of the brain are starting to turn on because when they're born, only 80% of the brain is, you know, active. So, you know, around three, three and a half, that prefrontal cortex engages and they have the executive functioning turning on. So now we can start to engage with them in a more, you know, in a more heightened way. It's not just moving them from place to place. Mm -hmm. So we have to grow in the way we communicate with them. We have to grow with them, as it were. And the challenge for us as parents, I think, is because it's so much growth exponentially in such a short period of time. We're not used to that. You know, it's it's a lot for us to take in because in that growth is also loss. So it's not a my child's not a baby anymore that that there's a part of parents part especially mothers you know who this is a physical embodiment of me and this came out of my body Mm. there's there's a saying this is my heart walking outside of me now you know so um that there's so much around that that you know we don't we don't give enough attention to we don't have enough gratitude for um and you know and i feel like or we just don't have enough awareness of like this human knew everything coming in (laughs) they know everything we know less because it's been conditioned away from us conditioned Mm. out of us Ah. so they're here to teach us so bring they're bringing us back to the beginning to say this is the this is the purest place you can be. Hmm. This is where you learn so much so quickly as a human. What a fascinating perspective that is to see the child as the, the one that knows everything and the the adult or the parent who has had everything taken away from them. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And imagine, I have goosebumps, guys. Imagine... <laughs> If we parented with that in mind, imagine if we looked at our child and said, welcome teacher, I'm so glad you're here. I really need your help. Like, and if we looked at our children as heightened beings that they are, you know what I mean? And if we just supported them and we just said yes and to them with structure, because we're keeping in mind that children do definitely need structure. So that is our job is to love, support and give them structure. So because People who go out in the world without boundaries or limitations have a hard time. They have a hard time in relationships and they have a hard time understanding what they can and can't do. There's too much information in, you know, and I'm not just talking about the Internet. There's just too much coming at us all at once. You know, we drive down the street, there's cars, there's people talking, there's screaming. You know, it's a lot. There's a cacophony of noise here on this planet, you know, so... Structure is a safe place to learn in, you know, a sandbox, if you will. 
Something that you mentioned when you came in was you have a concept in your podcast mm-hmm. that you refer to that parallels the concept we talk about in our podcast. Yeah. Um, in improvised parenting, it is called the parent wound. <laughs> yes. And here at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast it has been referred to the artist wound. Yes. Um, I'm glad we were able to connect over that concept because I thought that was very cool. Yeah. And I loved hearing you talk about it because I was like, I can't wait to talk to Elise about this because I think the artist's wound is very similar to the parent wound and it has the very similar symptoms. Okay. So our wounds remind us that there's pain. So, well, we want to address that pain. Where does this pain come from? So we need to go on an exploration and really look into that. Mm-hmm. And the artist's pain or the artist's wound would mm-hmm. most likely be from the inability to express yourself truly and wholly as sure. a human. And that most likely, in my experience, comes from limiting beliefs that were fed to us in the first seven years of our lives. You you can't do this. If you do this, that's going to lead you down this road. Here's the things that you should be doing. You know, all of the shoulda, woulda, coulda stuff that we have going on in our brain. You know, this, this tape that we have on repeat, mm-hmm. you know, on loop. So um, it's the same with the parenting wounds and the parenting wounds come from very similar source. So, you know, when I grew up, I'm 55. So my parents were, I guess their parents were in the post-war depression. And so they grew up in a, you know, with a lack mentality. That seems to be very prevalent in this area. And so it's reinforced. It's continuously reinforced. Mm. And there's nothing that's, you know, saying, hey, what about this? You know, it's all like we talk about what we can't do and what we don't have and the pain we have and all the problems that are around us and that prevent us from getting what we want or doing what we want. Mm -hmm. And by saying that, you create more of that. When you start to talk about what I can do and what I, you know, and have these images in your head of the beauty, all the stuff that you can do, Mm -hmm. you create more of that. So we make choices in our thinking. The parenting wound comes from those misguided choices that were important at that time. The fear-based thinking, the lack-based thinking, you know, but that, that was then. And we get to rewrite it. We get to write it for ourselves. So that's mm. how you fix your wounds. But it's not just like, okay, now I know and I can do that. You know, you really got to go deeper into your subconscious where the wounds were created. Right. That's interesting. I just had this concept, had a conversation about this concept with our friend and listener, Angie. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that Liz and Ben and I have had this conversation before too. And I never really thought about it in conjunction with the artist wound. Um, but that idea of in a society where um, art might not be as valued as much as it should be, where does necessity lie? And you can tie it back to at the very core of a human existence, there were people making cave art about their life as a form of Mm self-expression in a time period where survival was at the root of existence. You were conducting your life in a way that to make you survive. But in that time they were still making art Gregorian chant too. Yeah, 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 because it was a form of, it was necessity as a form of expression. Mm-hmm. And the conversation I was having with our friend Angie was that 
it's amazing how, and I don't know if full circle is the right, but how we've are almost back to that point where we are doing everything we can to quote survive in a capitalist focused society or however you want to view it. Mm-hmm. And is art that's still the necessity. Mm-hmm. So in, in that process to survive is art a necessity. I think y- yes. Yeah. <laughs> or else we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing informs us more than um, the need to survive. Right. So mm-hmm. in, if we'll, if we talk about our most recent experience in 2020, we saw people go really deep into who they were creatively. And we saw all it all over the internet in yes. such an empowering way for everybody. Um, and I think art is at the root of our survival. Like you said, you so beautifully said that self-expression is, is it's intrinsic. It's in, and it's imploring us to, to get out. It's, it needs to get out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I am a big believer that you know, we, we live in a dual, you know, world of duality. We have dark and light. We have up and down. And so we go in ebbs and flows. And so we are in this really extreme curve of survival. And it, it, it makes me think of like back in the day in the Black Plague when Isaac Newton was like, you know, away in a room writing and just writing. And a lot of the stuff that he was writing, a lot of the scientific stuff that was he was expressing from himself was unheard of at the time. Mm-hmm. Definitely not accepted, especially by the church. But he was compelled by mm-hmm. expressing himself. Mm-hmm. And he pu- he pushed us so much further in such a short time. And I think that it's important as the human race for us to have those ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the film industry has the same thing. It goes yeah. independent films, blockbusters, independent <laughs> films, blockbusters, you know, yeah. every industry has it everywhere you look, Definitely. these sure. patterns exist, you know, and we, they're based on a formula that we can't even comprehend. Mm-hmm. But it, if yeah. we have the eyes to see it, we can recognize it. I think it's a little twofold, too, because it is self-expression, yeah. but art is also a form of communication, Absolutely. which is also necessary. Of course. And so we're, we're, again, in a capitalist society, and a lot of people are having a really hard time expressing themselves. Yeah. People are like, I don't know how to survive with this right now. Here's what I made. Yeah. 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 It's funny because I think there are people who don't even recognize it as making art, but that's yeah. what they're doing. Exactly. Right. Fascinating, well, and that's where the with the non fungible token society came from <laughs> is because we want to support each other in our yeah. art. I think we need to support each other in our art, mm-hmm. and if we can find a way to do that collectively, then capitalism is in trouble. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. So I mean, because that's what compels us away or pushes us away from our need our art you know our artistic expression is the need for survival and it's almost like what they say the hamster wheel so you know we get up we go to work we come home we watch tv we go to bed you know that cycle that vicious cycle of not expressing ourselves ah but you watch tv and who makes the television shows artists right so we're yeah yeah, we're experiencing (laughs) art from uh by Standard as a bystander as opposed to a participant sure you know in a way we are participating by watching it because mm-hmm. we're we're validating the effect is the effectiveness or the importance of what they're doing mm-hmm. so that's important too we need to yeah. go sit in seats we need to go sit in the movie theaters we need to go to all of the you know 
comedy shows. We need to support our improvisers and get out there and get our butts in the seats at ArtQuest, you know, Mm -hmm. now that we can. Right. You know, but I'll tell you what, art will not be held back because uh, improv improv is one of the hardest things that, you know, translates, you know, if outside of a live setting. And Mm -hmm. you really saw people bring it to life online. I mean, I saw some of the best improv I've ever seen online, <laughs> like this over throughout this pandemic. This, yeah. I mean, people just digging deep and making it work because yeah. they are so compelled to do it. Mm. That actually was a question I wanted to bring up because it may or may not start an argument, quote, quote. Um, but where does the where is the stronger value or is it of equal value? People who consume art or people who make art? And I personally think that art doesn't have to be made for other people, but generally is and definitely can be. But that's interesting that you bring it up in terms of improv, because does improv have value if there's no live audience? And of course it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah improv has value to the performers. And I think that one informs the other. So really, you, I mean, it's important to have both because it, it it adds it's it creates an energy that like i was saying earlier expands mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if we look at you know this macrocosmic theory of you know the universe the universe is based on expansion why wouldn't we be as a microcosm of that mm, macrocosm yeah. we are expanding as humans we're growing as humans so if we elect to be stagnant mm-hmm. we are resisting our intention are in, you know, who we are. And so the capitalistic part of it is just, it's just a cog in a wheel. We happen to live in the United States and be in a capitalistic society, but we Mm -hmm. could also be, you know, in the jungles of Peru and still doing it and still enjoying it. And money doesn't matter. We could be trading fishing poles made of sticks for it. It doesn't matter. None of that, that doesn't matter to the art itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, in, in improv, before you brought up the importance of listening. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing a lot of that this episode <laughs> and not asking a lot of questions. You're a good but, listener, Ben. But one of the questions I do have, taking it back to improvised parenting. Mm-hmm. So much like I've been sitting here listening and learning from you, mm-hmm. what is something or the biggest thing that you've learned from one of your guests on the show? One of my guests that agreed to come on my show that blew me away was my former professor, Elizabeth Evans. And um, it's so funny because like I was saying earlier, when I was in school, you know, getting my degree, I was also in my, you know, in my third trimester and I had my baby in March of my, you know, of my final semester of school. And um, it was just funny. Her class is one of the classes that I took a lesser grade in, but she was one of the most valued teachers. You know, that teacher that you just you want to make a good impression on. Sure. She was that teacher. And mm. to find that we've come full circle and she was a guest on my podcast and we speak the same language and her mission is so similar to mine. It's just so beautiful to, to learn that about her. And um, we're going to have a series, the two of us, because Going back to capitalism, not being able to afford parent support shouldn't prevent parents from having support. And I'm going to cry because it's not fair. Every parent needs support. You know, I was a single mom. I needed support. I even knew what I was doing and I still needed support. 
it's so important and it's not fair that it's not available to everybody mm. for free. It should be. Absolutely. And so that is our mission for the entire world. It's our God-given gift and it's it's our mission. That's incredible. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I got emotional. No, that's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And speaks a lot to what drives you yeah. and your projects mm. and your work. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's deeply rooted passion of mine. Yeah. Deeply rooted. Now, would you say with not just improvised parenting, but everything else that you do, that that's what drives you to do it? I would say, yeah, passion. Passion yeah. for what I'm doing. I can't yeah. not do something I'm passionate about, mm. and I can't do something I'm not passionate about. Mm. I struggle with doing something that's just rote or doesn't serve a purpose, you know, to other people. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. That connects right back to... Your creative process, yeah. it starts with an idea yeah. and comes from there. Yeah. <laughs> an idea and a passion for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. passion. And saying yes. Yes, <laughs> saying yes to your passion and honoring that passion because that passion is the truth of who you are. It is at the core of it. You're wonderful, Lori. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys are so wonderful. Back. <laughs> Shh, don't look, everybody. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you have a great voice for a microphone. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you. What has that voice done on the microphone? I have been told that I have a good voice for radio and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was talking before about when I was doing spoken word here in the Lehigh Valley um, and we did Pass the Book, which came out of, you know, an improvised writing format. Um my writing partner, Nori, and I, Lori and Nori, were offered a radio show. And from that radio show, I had my own radio show on WMUH Allentown, 91.7, the only station that matters. Um, <laughs> shout out to my peeps. Um, <laughs> and my show was called The 50-Foot Queenie, and I loved it. It was the most fun I ever had because it's just you get to do whatever you want as long as you're not playing like pop radio, yeah. you know, and you're not playing songs with curse words in it, which I did sometimes <laughs> by accident. So sorry, peeps. Um, but sorry, not sorry. And... Um, But yeah, and so that led to, you know, just um, this confidence behind a mic and not being afraid because a lot of people have that fear of like speaking into mic. My sister was going to do a podcast. Mm. Um, She has some really great ideas, but and she bought a mic and she bought a setup and she she recorded and she said, I hate my voice. I'm not doing it. And she gave me her microphone. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like. That shouldn't stop you. Just do it. Your oh, voice man. matters. Yeah. You know, and it's so powerful. One thing I learned in radio was that it's our job to put our art, our, what we have to offer out there. And that's it. We're not responsible for who gets it, who likes it, who mm. receive, how they receive it. None of that is our responsibility. We just need to put it out there. For sure. You know, and share it. That's what we're here for is to inform everybody else to, you know, that here's, here's this. You can take it and do what you want with that, you know? Mm. And then from that, I ended up in voiceover in California. So that somewhere in between um, working at 20th Century Fox, 
doing improv. I had, you know, a day job. And that was doing voiceover in the video game industry. So I wasn't the voiceover artist. However, I was the coordinator. So it was my job to call up the agencies and hire Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, <laughs> to come into our studio for 20 minutes and get this big fat check. Um, but I mean, I thought, wow, this is an amazing life. I want to do this. So, you know, I started to learn more about voiceover and mm. I started to work with more voiceover people. You know, my they became my friends and... Um, now, my friend Hannah and I, during the pandemic, decided that we're both going to be narrators. And I say it like that because she's British and she says, narrator, we're going to be narrators. <laughs> and I was like, yes, we're going to be narrators, you know. And so we talked about getting mics and doing it. And it was just kind of another yes and. Yeah. Of course, because I did the radio show and I worked in the voiceover industry, of course I'm going to do that. Yeah. So, oh, that's, that's so what fun. I did. You know, I have a Rode NT1A in my basement. Nice. With, you know, four audio, audio mute um, panels. <laughs> yeah. Ready to go. Yeah. I've seen your setup over Zoom and yeah. very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun, you know. Oh, it's so fun. Well, and that's another, like, thing that I want to share is it wasn't hard to do. It's just mm. a matter of saying yes mm. and then put just pulling all the tools in, yeah. you know, telling the universe, okay, this is what I'm going to do now, okay? And by saying the telling the universe, you're just informing, you know, you're saying, I, yes, this is what I want to do and, you know, help me find it. Definitely. I, and manifesting it, like you said earlier, Elise, because mm -hmm. one of my favorite stories about manifesting for me was when my daughter was a little tiny and, you know, the popular thing to do back then was to make these homemade tents out of like four bamboo poles and a nice pretty sheet. And mm. I had the pretty sheet, but I didn't have the four bamboo poles. And so I was like, I got to get four bamboo poles. So I took my dog for a walk and we're walking around the block and leaning against a dumpster were four bamboo poles. <laughs> and I looked at my husband at the time and I said, those are for me. And it was like this, I, I didn't even know they were there. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was like this thing, yeah. like I asked the universe for these. I said, this is what I need. And then I went for a walk and there they were. And I was like, well, those must be for me because I just asked for those. <laughs> and so we took them home and put them up. And my daughter had a tent in our living room where the pool table used to be for years. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's that simple, people. It's really that simple. Believing in yourself, knowing. It's it's that saying that always pops into my head. I know, like I know, like I know. When you trust your gut and you feel mm -hmm. into your gut and you know this is what you're supposed to be and supposed to do. Like this podcast, you knew you were supposed to do this. So you just said, let's do it. You knew you were supposed to build this studio, Ben. Yeah. And you guys just said, there's there's yeah. nothing stopping us. And if there For is, sure. we'll find a way around it. We'll find a way to get what we need to make this a reality. Yeah. The best... Um phraseology for like manifesting something that I love and I think of it often um, is I don't chase something I attract it yes, so if you, are, if you are meant to have it <laughs> you yes. will have it <laughs> can I give a yes queen <laughs> come on girl you know and whatever what's the second part of it I don't chase, I attract what belongs to me will find me. That's right. What Definitely. you are seeking is also seeking you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yes. I love that. <laughs> so when I lived in Texas, I went to Austin Film Festival. <gasps> and when I went there, it was the year that Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird came out. Stop. And it was <laughs> one of the films playing at the festival. And <sighs> she was there. So it played. And she talked a bit about how the movie came to exist. She's like, I wrote it. I wanted to be the writer. And I knew that it had to happen. So in order to get it to have to happen, um, I put myself as the director and the whole time thinking to myself, I'm going to find somebody to direct this. It'll be fine. And I can start writing the next thing. <laughs> Got closer and closer to time. She's like, this needs to happen. I haven't found a director yet. What am I going to do? And she's like, wait, I'm the director. I, from the beginning, <laughs> I've been the director and this has to be made. So she did it and she fell in love with it. And she's like, I knew this needed to exist. And so I followed what the universe was telling me to do mm -hmm. and narrowing me to do because I couldn't find anyone else to do it. So I went for it. Yeah. And it was so cool to hear her talk about that. Yeah. It's so true because I mean, these kids who are just compelled to do it. I mean, yeah. these, you know, I, I mean, I think back in time when I, when I was in, you know, in the independent film realm and yeah. you know like the harmony corins of that time period they're just compelled to do it they have Definitely. to do it mm -hmm. you know wes anderson he you know his films weren't like publicly you know uh, it, they weren't based on what we you know societal constructs yeah. they were based on these oddities yeah you know and some of the best films out there. There are, there are yeah. some of the, I mean, oh my the, gosh. The intricacies of noticing little things. Yes. It's like, that's what I love about Definitely. Them. Yes. Yeah. One time I was at the screening of Punch Drunk Love and P.T. Anderson was there and I watched the film in the back row in amazement. I was clenching the seat because I couldn't believe like the transitions, the sounds, the noises, the yeah. running, <laughs> the running. And I went up to him afterwards and I was going, I went to him and I, there was a crowd and I just parted the crowd and I looked at him and I said, the running. <laughs> and we ended up making out afterwards. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how i expected you to end that story <laughs> but i love it i just hope he wasn't with maya at the time i don't think he was <laughs> yeah um, sorry maya you are one of my heroes but <laughs> i didn't know amazing <laughs> oh my goodness Wow. <laughs> well, Laurie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yes, thank thank you. you, guys. This has been the most fun. <laughs> I really love it. Even though I'm sweating and I've taken off all my clothes, I'm still <laughs> enjoying it. I don't have any shame. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Lori, so just real quick, if people want to find you, find your podcast, yeah. have your website mm -hmm. here. It is www.theimprovisedparent.com. And you can also find Lori on Instagram at The Improvised Parent. Yeah. And I have a new digital card on Linktree. So you can find everything oh. there at Linktree. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash The Improvised Parent. Okay. And that'll give you the links to all of my social media, everything that, you know, all the podcasts, all my videos, my private um, free parent support group. So it's all there. Lovely. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you, you for Karen. coming on and for sharing your resources. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been my pleasure and joy.
So during our episode with Lori, we talked a little bit about the Stonewall Memories Project. So that is our opportunity of the week. Stonewall Lehigh Valley has been a place of connection and community for so many LGBTQ people for nearly 50 years. Its closure truly marks the end of an era. As our community remembers good times at Stonewall, the Lehigh Valley LGBT Community Archive wants to collect these memories and preserve them for the future. Share your memories, stories, experiences, and photographs from or about Stonewall Lehigh Valley. These submissions will become part of Bradbury Sullivan's permanent community archive to be sure that our local LGBTQ history is not lost. This effort is co-chaired by Ariel Torres, Stephen Libby, and Emma Smith. Memories that are collected will be included in a future public exhibit and in a special issue of the Gay Journal. You can share your memories through this project supported by the Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Center at bradburysullivancenter.org slash archives. Yeah. Make sure that you submit anything that you have. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a good opportunity. Sounds like Lori will be. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in this week. This is the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast recording here at Steel Pixel Studios in downtown Bethlehem. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.